And Father, we thank you for just bringing us here tonight. We pray that your spirit now would be our teacher. As we open your word, Lord, let your spirit just uh, give us insight, give us understanding, and give us grace, Lord, to do to take your word tonight in any way we can apply it to our lives. Uh, Lord, even though this is a future territory, we just pray you give us grace to be ready. And uh, so we thank you, Lord. We ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good evening, everybody. Uh, just if you haven't gotten a book, one per family, uh, but uh, I saw these and um, they were, we got them for a good price. Uh, David Jeremiah, Why the Nativity? And I thought I'd buy a bunch, let you take one for free just to kind of read it as a devotional during the Christmas season and uh, kind of get your mind thinking on why Jesus had to come to the earth. So they're in the back, very back table there. You can grab one on your way out if you'd like. All right, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Bear with me, I'm recovering from something. Voice is a little tender still, but by God's grace, we're going to make it. So I want to pick it up in uh, verse 9, Revelation 21, verse 9, get a running start on today's study. <clears throat> Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having, uh, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three on the south, three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who, had, he who talked with me uh, had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The, the uh, city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Now, just by way of review a little bit from last time, there are many... Interestingly, I didn't know this till I studied this, but there are many who apparently uh, think that this city is not a real city. It's an allegorical city, it's symbolic. And then they spiritualize everything away. I personally believe that this city is a literal city, not a symbolic city. I believe that in part because of the fact that measurements are given. Measurements are given which I believe would be would serve no purpose if this wasn't a real city. Why would you measure a symbolic city? It doesn't make any sense, right? The fact that the Holy Spirit uh, has the angel uh, measure out the city is uh, God's way of telling us this is a real city, not an allegorical one. Um, the results of the angel's measuring revealed that the city is laid out uh, like a giant cube. Not like as a giant cube, I should say. It's height, depth, and width, all measuring 12,000 furlongs. The Greek is stadia. A stadion was about 650 feet. 
Thus, the city walls are about 1,500 miles in height, depth, and width, a perfect cube, not a pyramid, as some commentators like to suggest. Um, pyramids are seen everywhere in the occult. God never incorporates uh, the image of a pyramid in anything that he does or has built. Case in point, um, when God told Moses to build the tabernacle, uh, the holy of holies of the tabernacle measured 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet, a perfect cube. Centuries later, when God had Solomon build the temple, again, 1 Kings 6, verse 20, he made the holy of holies, the place where God dwells, uh, between the cherubim, a perfect cube. Pyramids and, and, and those that are ziggurats, which is a form of a pyramid with a flat uh, top, uh, these things were ascended by a pagan priest to worship the hosts of heaven. And so, you know, God never includes a pyramid anywhere, and I don't believe he does so here, even though some think he might, this might be a pyramid. No, uh, it's a cube. And um, so again, the dimensions of the New Jerusalem measure 1,500 miles high, wide, and deep. Guys, this city is so large, it's about three-quarters the size of the moon. Let that sink in. It's about three-quarters the size of the moon, um, it's so big that it would cover, if you put it right down on our country, remembering America is 3,000 miles from sea to shining sea, okay? Um, this city would cover from Canada down to the Gulf of Mexico and from the Atlantic Ocean to Colorado. Henry Morris was a brilliant scientist, but a very devout, strong Christian points out that a cube-shaped city is well-suited for the existence of glorified beings. He said, and I quote, It should also be remembered that the new bodies of the resurrected saints will be like those of angels, no longer limited by gravitational or electromagnetic forces as at present. Thus, it will be as easy for the inhabitants to travel vertically as well as horizontally in the New Jerusalem. Consequently, the streets of the city, verse 21, may well include vertical passageways as well as horizontal avenues. And the blocks could be real cubicle blocks instead of, of square areas between streets as in present-day earthly cities, end quote. Um, just how many people could a city this big hold? Well, again, Morris, and I'm going to quote him a couple of times this evening, because he had some really interesting things to say about the New Jerusalem, all right? And um, how many people could you fit in this city? Well, um, he said, and I quote, giving some, us speculation, he says, it can be calculated that the number of people who have lived between Adam's time and our time is about 40 billion. Then assuming that a similar, similar number will be born during the Millennial Kingdom, and allowing another 20 billion for those who died before or soon after birth, it is then reasonable that about 100 billion men, women, and children will be members of the human race from Adam through the thousand-year millennial kingdom. So you understand, from Adam and Eve all the way through the thousand-year millennial kingdom, about 100 billion people will have lived on planet Earth. Let's assume 
that one out of five or 20% of these will be saved, including those who die in infancy. Of course, this is a, a, a guesstimate. If this guesstimate is correct, then the New Jerusalem will hold about 20 billion people. Now, that's almost three times the size of the Earth's population right now. People talk about overcrowding, you know, and all this kind of stuff. To think that almost three times the amount of people alive on Earth right now could live in this new Jerusalem, people say, well, how's that possible? How are they all going to fit? Now, this, is, I thought, was very interesting. Morris said, again, and I quote, if every person, person living in the new Jerusalem was given, listen, a 75-acre cube to live in, it would only take up 25% of the entire city, leaving 75% for parks, streets, lakes, rivers, public buildings, which I'm not sure what that would mean, and whatever else the Lord wanted to include in this city. Now, think about this for a minute, okay? And I, I you know, people think, I don't want to live in a city. I hate the city. I like living in the country. I like space. Oh, okay. I did a little research. The average size home in America is about 2,500 square feet. Now, let's just take that, the average size home, all right? A lot of folks who own a 2,500 square foot house don't really use all of it. There's rooms you never go into. There's areas that you never really access, but they're there. And, of course, a 2,500-square-foot house, there's a lot of room there. You don't feel cramped at all. You're not talking about a 500 uh, or 600-square-foot uh, little tiny apartment, okay? So, but think of this. An acre contains, listen, 43,560 square feet. If Morris is right and we each get a 75-acre cube, 43,000 560 square feet times 75 equals 3,267,000 square feet. You think you'd feel roomy and something like that? You feel it? But now here's the other thing. Now you got to times it by whatever number to e equal a cube. Because an acre, I mean, you're talking about two-dimensional measurement. So... 40, I mean, think about this, 3,267,000 square feet for a 75-foot uh, plot of land. But then you've got to times it by whatever number you math people can do the math for me and let me know. Uh, how many millions of square footage would go into this cube? Folks, it's like you own your own country in the Millennial Kingdom. I mean, if that's true, um, that's going to be an incredible amount of area for us to have to move around in. Never going to feel cramped or crowded at all. Now, verse 17. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man that is of an angel. The angel next measures the city's walls. He said, wait a minute, you just told us it was 1,500 miles high, wide, deep, and so on. What's going on here? Well, commentators believe what's in view here is the thickness. And again, why would we need to know the thickness of these walls? For no other reason but to show us this, these are literal walls. They're not allegorical, okay? Now, there are different lengths of cubits. Why? 
because a, a cubit originally started out as the, as the length between your elbow and your middle finger. But everyone's arms are different. Large people, that would be a, a larger measurement. Short people, obviously shorter. So the average cubit is about 18 inches. Okay, just to standardize it, which means that these walls are 216 feet thick. Then, as if to emphasize that the city's dimensions are literal and not allegorical, John adds the uh, parenthetical footnote that those dimensions were given, and I'm paraphrasing, those dimensions were given according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Or in other words, <laughs> a yard is a yard, a foot is a foot, a mile is a mile, whether you're talking about humans or angels, and whether it be the physical realm or the spiritual realm. That's really, I think, what John is saying there. Verse 18. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. Uh, this gold is so pure it's translucent. Now, I remember reading somewhere years ago how that some of the pharaohs of Egypt when they were buried, they found gold in these tombs that was 28 carats pure. We, we, we talk about 24 carat gold, right? Well, th this gold was 28 carats pure, and from what I understand, if you slice it thin enough, you can almost begin to see through it. Um, we don't know, but maybe in heaven, God uses gold in the New Jerusalem that's 100 carats pure or 200 carats pure. So pure, you can see through it like glass. Amazing, if you think about that, right? Look at verses 19 and 20. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh uh, chrysolite, um, Chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopras, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. Or amethyst. Um, this city, guys, is exactly what the writer of the Hebrews said in chap chapter 11, verse 10, um, a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. This is that city. Then John next turns his attention in the vision to the foundation stones of the city wall, which he describes in some detail. Uh, the names of some of these stones have changed over uh, or throughout the centuries, making their identification somewhat uncertain. We'll give it a shot, okay? Um, you'll get the idea, though. The first foundation, and guys, I imagine these foundations laying one on top of the other. Some commentators want to make them you know, each side by side, end to end, and then, but I think the idea is that they're laid one on top of each other, okay? So the first foundation stone uh, was jasper, which, as we've al already previously noted, is best identified as a diamond. The second was sapphire, which is a brilliant blue stone. The third was chalcedony, an agate stone from the Chalcedon region, which is now modern Turkey, it is sky blue in color with colored stripes. The fourth was emerald, a bright green stone. The fifth 
was sardonyx, a red and white striped stone. The sixth was sardius, a common quartz stone found in various shades of red. The seventh, seventh was chrysolite, a transparent gold or yellow-hued stone. The eighth was beryl, a stone found in various colors, including shades of green, yellow, and blue. The ninth was topaz, a yellow-green stone. The tenth was uh, chrysopras, a gold-tinted green stone. The eleventh was uh, jacinth, uh, a blue or violet-colored stone. In John's day, the modern, the modern equivalent, from what I understand, is a red or reddish-brown zircon. And then the twelfth was amethyst, a, a purple stone. Now, here's the thing, and I could be wrong. I don't think these are literal precious stones that John sees. I think he's trying his best to describe something that he's never seen before. And what I think is going on here is that, again, these are not different kinds and layers of precious stones. They're different layers of multicolored lights that the city is sitting on, which have some kind of physical properties that allows them to become a foundation that this city, then, the New Jerusalem, is built upon. We're, we're, we're talking about things we don't have any concept of. We're now in the eternal state. This might be an entirely new dimensionality. We don't know uh, what, what is, you know, we'll know eventually. But right now, uh, you know, and, and we have an advantage over John because we come 2,000 years after him. Can you imagine a first century guy trying to describe our world? He's trying to describe eternity. So I, I get this. He's, a, he's at a loss, and I could be wrong, but I do think that what he is seeing is a city built on layers of multicolored lights that have physical properties to them. What an incredible sight. What did John see? What are we going to see the first time we see the New Jerusalem? But not only that, guys, as we have already said, the glory and radiance of God will be shining through these crystal walls. Remember, they're like diamonds, clear as crystal. And when you shine bright lights through crystals, it's a prism, and it shoots multicolored lights everywhere. Think about that, right? You're going to have God himself in the midst of this city, radiating like the sun, and as his radiance, his light, goes through the city, it's going to shoot multicolored lights everywhere because the walls of the city will act like a prism. They're like clear as diamond, right? Um, <laughs> I just... If you, you imagine a city this beautiful, shooting multicolored lights throughout the universe. Uh, it's amazing. And don't forget this, that the Bible says of the redeemed, and I'll just read these to you. Judges 5.31, Thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. So those that love you, Lord, let them be like the sun, right? Well, Daniel Chapter 12, verse 3, talks about that in a sense. He said, To those who are wise, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, I want you to think about this. Can you imagine 20 billion people all flashing back and forth, up and down like shooting stars in the New Jerusalem? Think about that for a minute. 
because we are going to shine like the sun. You realize that before the fall, there's a, a psalm, I forgot which one, that said that uh, Adam was clothed, and Eve was, were clothed in light. They were light beings. The fall changed that. And God's going to restore us to our former glory, but multiply it how many times over, I don't know. But we are going to radiate like the sun um, in this new city. And again, 20 billion people flashing because we're going to be able to move up and down, back and forth. We're not going to be limited to ground level anymore. Uh, just flashing back and forth, up and down through the city like shooting stars. One author put it this way, said, and I quote, The scene was one of breathtaking beauty, a spectrum of dazzling colors flashing from the New Jerusalem throughout the recreated universe, end quote. Look at verse 21. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was, was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. So this is where we get the pearly gates of heaven from. All right. So a lot of stuff, traditions and things, um, is not really biblical, but the pearly gates are. Okay. Uh, each of these gates is made up from a single pearl. Uh, as someone has said, I'd like to see the oysters these came from. You realize that a pearl is the only natural gem created by a living organism. The only natural gem created by a living organism. When an irritant, like a tiny speck of dust or sand, gets trapped in a mollusk, uh, such as an oyster or a mussel, the mollusk begins to coat the irritant with a, with a secretion called nacre. Um, to protect itself. Nacre is the same substance that the shell of the oyster is made up from. Over time, the iridescent layers of nacre build up to form a pearl. You say, well, how long does it take? Depends on the size of the pearl. Anywhere from six months to four years, uh, from what I understand. Now, in Matthew 13, Jesus likened all of his disciples to the pearl of great price. Remember that? Singular, because together we are one body. He likened us to a pearl because we started out as an irritant to God because of sin, an irritant that God covered with the blood and righteousness of Christ, causing us now to be precious in his sight. So here, guys, we see the 12 gates made up of one pearl each, no doubt spaced evenly several hundred miles apart on every side. I imagine this city is perfectly symmetrical. Perfect, 1,500 miles you know, wide, deep, high, perfect symmetry. I did the math, and if you were to start at one end of the wall, the far end where the corner is, you have to come in about 400 miles to reach the first gate, another 400 miles to reach the second gate, another 400 miles to reach the third gate, and then 400 miles to the end of the wall, all the way around. I just imagine this is going to be an incredibly symmetrical, beautiful city. And by the way, we're talking about the gates of heaven. I don't see St. Peter standing by any of them. And that not that the big joke? You know, when, when we die, you know, St. Peter is standing at the gates. Why should I let you in? Well, it's not up to Peter. And he's not standing by the gates anyways, okay? Um, there's a lot of stuff that gets started, and it's like, wow. All right. Just thought I'd throw that out. But Morris, again, said, although the description is not specific enough for us to be sure, it seems probable 
that these 12 gates extend upward through the entire height of these great walls. Each gate's 1,500 miles high, thus permitting access into the city at every level. Yeah, we can, if we can fly and, uh, and move vertically as well as horizontally, you can enter the city anywhere in that 1,500-mile you know, deal where the gate is 1,500 miles high, each of them, and you can enter, and, and they're never closed. We'll see why in a second. But you can enter the uh, city at any level that you choose to. And guys, these gates are, are, we're told, are never closed. Verse 25, the gates shall not be shut at all by day. There is no night there. The gates of the city are not ever closed because, listen, they are not needed for protection. They're not needed for protection. In ancient times, the gates of a city were always closed at sundown to protect the city from invading armies or marauding bands of robbers. While most of the city slept, uh, you didn't have your full army and citizenry uh, able to defend the city. People were sleeping. So they would close the gates, making it harder, of course, um, for any enemies to penetrate the city at night while most of the population was asleep. Uh, this won't be a problem for the New Jerusalem. Why is that? Well, the gates are never closed, first of all, because there's no night there. Second, there are no criminals to worry about in the New Jerusalem. How do I know that? Read verse 27. And third, even if there were, it wouldn't matter, because why? Because the Lord's going to be there. The Bible says, unless the Lord you know, guards the house, guards the city, uh, the watchman labors in vain anyways. So, you know, this is the Lord's city. But we don't have to worry that anyone would want to enter it and do any harm because they won't be allowed, all right? Um, but guys, I don't know if you thought about this. This means that the angels who stand by these gates, verse 12, talks about these angels, right, are not guards. They're not guarding the city to protect it. What are they? Are you ready? They're angelic doormen. Angelic doormen, that's correct. Whose job it will be to welcome those coming into the city and to say goodbye to those leaving the city, going out on, I don't know, planetary explorations or some kind of mission for the king. We're going to go on missions for the king. Read chapter 22, verse 3. Not right now, but uh, yeah. Okay. We've talked about, we'll talk about that more when we get to it next time. But verse 22. But I saw no temple in it. No temple in the New Jerusalem. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The word temple uh, is the Greek word naos, and it's a word that is used for the sanctuary or the dwelling place of God. Now, as you read your Bibles in the New Testament and you come across the word temple, you don't know which word in the Greek that is, okay? But there's two words. Now, one is, the, is, is the naos, which is the temple proper, the building uh, that we think of, we think of the temple. But there's another word, it's hieron in the Greek. Now, in our Bible, it's just temple, temple, it doesn't, you know, but you have to look at the context. If the word hieron is used, it's the temple precincts, which was about 35 acres, okay, in Jesus' day. And, um, but here, the word is nas, indicating, you know, um, a building, you know, the official temple building that we think of, uh, you know, Solomon's temple and, and so on and so forth, right? But um, 
it talks about God's dwelling place. We know that the uh, actual temple building consisted of the holy place and the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant um, once sat. Uh, first in the tabernacle in the wilderness, right, under Moses, uh, this temporary structure they dragged through the wilderness for 40 years. Um, and then when they entered the promised land, eventually God had Solomon built a permanent structure, the temple. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant went into. And that's where it stayed until around the days of Jeremiah when it disappeared. Many think Jeremiah took it and hid it because he knew the Babylonians were coming and Israel wasn't repenting, and so he wanted to preserve it. We don't know if that's what happened, okay? Uh, some believe it's still around today, and um, eventually will be exposed. We'll, we'll see. Um, I doubt if we'll be here to see that. Um, that probably will be after the rapture stuff. But um, in the New Jerusalem, what's being t said here? Well, in the New Jerusalem, there won't be any actual temple building. Again, the temple represented the dwelling place of God. Well, God's going to be in the midst of his people, all right? Uh, he will be a virtual temple in and of himself, the Father, the Son, uh, and so on. Uh, in fact, guys, I imagine the whole city will be one big holy of holies. I mean, think about that. One big holy of holies um, with God's throne probably in the very center of the city. Wow. At that time, during the, the, the eternal state, believers are going to have access to the most sacred, intimate fellowship with the Lord, their God, that we can ever imagine. I mean, there's been promises that have been made to us, uh, nonetheless from Jesus, right? But the idea is that somebody could promise you something without you fully understanding what's involved, Okay. But um, Jesus did tell us. In fact, turn to John 14. I mean, in the New Testament, God has given us many great and precious promises that deal with our relationship with him and the ultimate fellowship we're going to have with him someday. Of course, you all know John 14, starting with um, verse 2, where Jesus said, In my Father's house are many, what? Yeah, but be careful. Uh, you'll see characters on TV that will try to tell you that um, in heaven, uh, depending on how much money you give to God now, which means give to their ministry, right? Let's be honest. Uh, that will determine how big your mansion is going to be in heaven. One televangelist, I remember him saying years ago, God gave me a vision of heaven. And he started taking me down the streets of the gold and on either side were giant, beautiful mansions. And the farther I walked, the less these mansions got, the simpler until they were shacks on the other side of the tracks kind of thing. So you better give your money now, lest you want to live in a shack in heaven. Wow. The Greek is dwelling places. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not, if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, Jesus was speaking to a group of Jewish men. And the Jewish people understood the temple. They knew that when Solomon built the temple, 
Um, of course, it was destroyed by the Babylonians, but rebuilt eventually, beautified by Herod. But it, it kept the same basic uh, layout, format. Let's just go back to Solomon's for a second. When Solomon had the temple built, uh, you had, of course, you think of the walking into the first compartment, the holy place where the table of showbread and the menorah and the golden altar. Then in behind the curtain was the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant sat. If you can imagine that, on the outside, he built, uh, he built three uh, rows of apartments. Some of them were storage units for they had to store oil and wine and wheat and different things that were used to offer to God, okay? Uh, so you had to have storehouses for some of that stuff. But there were also apartments. Why? Because there were so many priests... Uh, that David divided them into 24 courses. Each priest had to serve God in the temple, uh, well, in David's day, the tabernacle, but then later the temple, uh, for two weeks out of the year. So for those two weeks, what a great honor. Two weeks out of the year, you, you actually lived in the house of the Lord, right? Remember what David said, you know, I just long to, to live forever in the house of the Lord. Well, he was Picking up on this idea, I think David, if he had his choice, would have chosen to be a Levite because he wanted to be a priest instead of, uh, uh, instead of, uh, of the tribe of Judah where Messiah descended from. But the idea was that David wanted to be so close to God, you couldn't get any closer than the Holy of Holies. And if I have an apartment right outside the wall of the Holy of Holies, you know, three levels, you, you walked upstairs to each of the levels. Wow, what, that would be awesome to live in the house of the Lord, right? In the New Jerusalem, that's exactly what's being said here. That's what Jesus is saying. That in the Father's house, there are many dwelling places. All of God's people are going to live basically in the presence of God. Uh, and, 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 and if you understand that in God's presence, there is fullness of what? Joy. Would you want to be anywhere else? Really? I mean, if you just think about that for a second. In your presence is fullness of joy. I don't know how full joy is going to be in heaven, but it's going to be quite a bit, right? Quite a bit. Uh, joy unspeakable, full of glory. But guys, again, the whole city, the whole New Jerusalem is the Father's house, as the temple was called in Jesus' day, by the way, the Father's house. All right, but, but again, in Jesus' day, there was a literal building. In the New Jerusalem, the whole city will be the Father's house, sanctuary of God. In that sense, God will be the virtual temple. We won't need a building of bricks and mortar. Verse 23, the city had no need of sun uh, or uh, of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. 1 John 1, verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Turn to 1 Timothy 6 real quick. This is the one that really communicates this point. 1 Timothy 6, verse 16. Speaking about God who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, 
in all of his fullness is the idea, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Verse 23 doesn't necessarily mean that the sun and moon and stars will be no more in the new heavens, in the new universe. All right. Um, Psalm 148, verse 3, and then verse 6. Uh, let me just read it to you. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you stars of light, verse 6. He also established them, for, uh, established them forever and ever. So he establishes the sun, moon, stars forever and ever. He made a decree which shall not pass away. So it seems from this passage and others that when it says in verse 23, the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the Lord God illuminated it in the Lamb as its light. That doesn't mean, though, that the sun, moon, stars are going to be no more in the new heavens. I, I believe the scriptures teach that they're going to be around. Uh, no longer needed to, not needed to illuminate the holy city, for the city itself will radiate with the glory of God. Uh, and some believe it could, in fact, become, eventually, when we finally see it, it could eventually be the brightest luminary in the universe. That, that would be something to think about. The new Jerusalem would be so incredible, the city doesn't need the light of the sun, moon, stars, because the Lord is there and he will radiate uh, light, fill the city with light. Turn to Isaiah 60. The city itself will radiate the glory of God. Isaiah 60 talks about this starting with verse 18. Violence shall no longer be heard in your land. Now, I believe the context is the eternal state. But violence shall no longer be heard in your land, neither wasting nor destruction within your borders. But you shall call your walls salvation. Now, I believe the new Jerusalem is in view. And your gates praise. The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord will be to you an everlasting light, and your God your glory. Your sun shall uh, no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your mourning shall be ended. You can look at Revelation 21, verse 4, with regard to that. Um, so, wow, okay. Um, now, let me just give you some things that uh, are not certain. Interesting, I'll just throw out what some people think. Uh, good scholars, and you can run with it if you like and make it your own if you think it's wor worthy of you know its correct interpretation. Let me just give it to you. And again, we're speculating. I mean, I'm not saying the Bible teaches this. There are passages that imply some of it, all right? But some think the New Jerusalem will orbit the earth during the Millennial Kingdom. So when John says, I saw it coming down from heaven, some assume, well, it's, be, it's been created at that moment and it's coming down from heaven. That doesn't necessarily uh, have to be the interpretation, okay? Uh, there are scholars that believe that the new Jerusalem will be around, starting with the new uh, with the millennial kingdom, and will orbit the earth during that thousand years. 
It will be in existence and be visible from the earth during the thousand-year reign of Christ, but will then land on the earth and remain forever during the eternal state. Look at Revelation 21.2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Sounds like it was in heaven, and, and, he, and when he says heaven, uh, he's talking about, I believe, uh, the, the heavens where the stars are. Okay, um, and sounds like John could be saying it was orbiting the earth um, for possibly the entire thousand-year reign of Christ, but now John sees it as we enter the eternal state. He sees it coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, some believe that uh, only the uh, church saints, the bride of Christ, will be living in the new Jerusalem during the millennial kingdom. Here's what they say. It's, it's quite a speculation, but they teach that during the millennial kingdom, we're going to be serving the Lord on the earth, okay? But at night, we're going to zip up to the orbiting city because we're going to be able to move vertically and horizontally, and we're not going to be limited to earth and gravity and anything like that. We have our glorified bodies, right? So think about this. You're serving the Lord all day, doing whatever you're doing, and, you know, and in the evening, you zip up to the new Jerusalem, which is orbiting the earth. I'm not saying I believe it's true. I'm just throwing it out there, okay? However, they say that it could be then that after the millennial kingdom is over, as we enter into the eternal state, uh, the new Jerusalem lands on the earth, remains there forever now, and then you see uh, all of the redeemed, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, eventually move into this city, and we're all going to live there forever for all of eternity with one another, right? And that during the eternal state, all the nations of the earth will make pilgrimages to the new Jerusalem periodically to pay homage to our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24 seems to say that. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Now, and the nations of those who are saved. The Greek word there is ethnos. We get our English word ethnic, ethnicity, from that Greek word. It's a Greek word that can be translated people. It can be. But is most frequently translated in the New Testament as Gentiles. That is not to say there won't be any Jews living in the New Jerusalem. But you remember what Jesus said. Why don't you turn to Matthew 8? This is a truly sad thing. Truly sad thing. Salvation is of the Jews. God chose them to be the instrument through which Messiah would come. Right? And uh, he said this way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. In you that is in your seed, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Because... Jesus would come from the line of David. He would be an earthly Jew, um, but he would be for all mankind. He would not be the savior of the Jewish people only, uh, but the savior of all mankind. The unfortunate thing about it is so many Jews rejected their own Messiah. Remember he said this to his disciples at one point, go out now, you got to learn how to preach. you got to get out there and start preaching. But don't go to the way of the Gentiles. Go only to the lost sheep 
of the house of Israel. Why? Because it was proper that they received the message first. They were the ones that God gave the oracles of God to, the word of God. They faithfully uh, wrote it down, the scribes did, and they watched over the word. They kept it alive from generation to generation. It was their promise that God was going to bring a Messiah who would establish a kingdom and so on. And so it was only fitting that they be the first ones to hear the good news. But after the Jewish, now there's, there was Jews that did receive the good news, but not many. And after they shut the door on Jesus and his disciples' ministry, then Jesus said, now go into the way of the Gentiles, right? Highways and byways and gather anyone who will listen to come into the kingdom, right? The marriage supper of the Lamb. But Jesus said it here in Matthew 8, starting with verse 10. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel, a Gentile. I believe the context was a um, Roman centurion whose uh, servant was sick, a servant he considered a son, you know. And uh, Jesus said, I'll come and heal your servant. I'm not worthy for you to enter into my home. I'm, I'm, but I'm a man under authority. I give an order to this man, he, go, he goes, another he comes. Just speak the word, and my servant will be healed. I don't, I'm not worthy to have you enter my house. Jesus looked at the Jews and said, this is, this is amazing. I haven't found this kind of faith in Israel. And then he makes this statement. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is he saying? He is saying that the kingdom of God is going to be populated primarily by Gentile believers. I mean, we want to see Jews saved the worst possible way. And God is working among the Jewish people uh, and will work incredibly during the tribulation period, uh, no less than saving 144,000 Jews who will then become evangelists to evangelize the world during the tribulation period. So I'm not saying the Jews will be excluded. But when you talk about the history of the world, all right, and those that Jesus, many will come from east, west, all over the world, Gentiles, and they will recline in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the sons of the kingdom, the Jewish people, it was their promise. They're going to be cast out because many rejected their own Messiah. That, that's hard. It's hard to think about. In fact, in Acts chapter 13, at one point, I forgot where Paul was, but Barnabas and Paul, uh, preaching uh, you know, in an area, and uh, many... Um, Gentiles were getting converted. And uh, the Jews rose up in envy and started to criticize and contradict. And finally, Paul said, look, we're out of here. Uh, you have proven yourselves unworthy to hear the word of God, the gospel. And we're going to go to the Gentiles, Acts 13, 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, we're thankful that God turned to the Gentiles 
at one point. That we were not excluded. You know, a lot of the Jews, especially the Jewish teachers, rabbis and Pharisees and so on, they taught in Jesus' day that God didn't love the Gentiles at all. He hated the Gentiles. The only reason he created the Gentiles was to fuel the fires of hell. They've actually taught that Father Abraham stood outside the gates of hell to pluck any, listen, unbelieving Jew. Didn't matter if, you, if a Jew even believed. As long as they had the blood of Abraham in their veins and were circumcised, they, God would never let them go to hell. And Father Abraham pulled them out of the line of Jews going into hell and they would be saved. So consequently, they didn't feel they needed the Jewish Messiah then, or they didn't believe Jesus was their Messiah. Um, and so they rejected him. They rejected him. Jesus, I came to you in my Father's name. Me, you've rejected. Another will come in his own name. Him, you will receive. What was he talking about? Ultimately, the Antichrist. Ultimately, right? But guys, you talk about a city. Every major city in our country is now overrun by, with violence. It's, it's just amazing. We are more divided now as a nation than we ever have been, you know? It's all in preparation for the Antichrist coming, you know, all this hatred and ethnic divisions. And Jesus said it uh, in Matthew. He said, um, he said that nation would rise against nation, right? This is all the lead-up to his return. It's interesting that the Greek word he uses is ethnos. This ethnic group will rise up against this ethnic group. You'd have this division along racial and, uh, and lines and so on, ethnic lines. Um, but the New Jerusalem is going to be a city where people from every tribe, family, um, tongue, people group, you talk about a diverse city full of all kinds of, every family on the face of the earth is going to have people living in this. God's going to make sure that people from every family on the face of the earth has got somebody there in the New Jerusalem to represent their family. You talk about a city that is diverse and yet a city that is totally undivided, a city in total unity, harmony, and love. Can you imagine? I was telling you that um, my sister used to live up in Northern California, a place called Placerville. Uh, interestingly, uh, Thomas Kincaid, the, the painter of lights, used to live up there. My sister at one time babysat his kids. And then she went to work for him as a master highlighter. She even came to Chicago and would put one of the lithographs of one of his paintings. And she'd actually, as she was talking about uh, Thomas Kincaid, who his life didn't end very well, but, uh, you know, uh, she would actually be putting oil, you know, painting oil on, onto this, making it look like a real painting, right? She said that in this little town, they would go to church and come back and find that somebody had come, they, nobody locked their doors. So what happened was people up there would break in but they wouldn't bring in to take anything. You come home and there was a bunch of tomatoes on your table, something for a pie somebody had baked. <laughs> you like that, right? I'd like to have somebody 
in, entering in your house, which the doors are never locked because people are welcome and, and only there to bless you. Can you imagine a city like that? This is going to be the new Jerusalem. I think it could be the only city on the face of the earth during, you know, uh, this time. But it'd be big enough for all of us to live anyways, right? So again, verse 25. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And guys, I have to believe that what's in view is not just physical night, you know, like when the day ends and the sun goes down and there's physical night. You remember how when Judas left to betray Christ, remember that? And Jesus gave him a, a uh, honored place uh, behind him. Um, you know, the places as they would recline. This is now the in the upper room, the Last Supper. The host always chose who would recline in front of him and behind him. Those were the favored positions, the, the places of honor. God had John recline in front of him and Judas behind him. And when Jesus dipped the bread into the sop and gave it to Judas, that in that culture was tantamount to proposing a toast. The Lord Jesus Christ was trying to give Judas another opportunity, well, an opportunity not to go through with this. It was like he was saying, Judas, you don't have to go through with this. I love you. It's not too late to repent of these actions, this betrayal. And if you will, I will forgive you. But he took the bread, dipped in the sop, and he went out, left the room, right, to finish carrying out his betrayal of Christ. And you notice what the Holy Spirit said? And it was what? Night. Of course it was night. It was Passover. Passover, did, Passover didn't even begin till the sun went down. This is the Holy Spirit's way of saying it was night. In other words, the day of grace and opportunity for Judas had come to an end, and now there was only the blackness of eternal darkness forever. And I think Jude said that, right? Um, about unbelievers being like wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So when it says there's no night there, yes, physically, but no spiritual darkness, no moral darkness, and so on. Now, guys, that doesn't mean uh, there won't be night in other places around the world. I'm just trying to kind of, you know, think about this a little bit and, and, and maybe what is being said and implied and whatever. Um, it, that, this doesn't necessarily mean that there won't be night in other places around the world. Um, as we just pointed out, the sun, the moon, and stars are still going to be around. They're going to be new. I mean, in the new heavens, there are going to be new objects in the sky. But you have a sun, moon, stars. They'll be brand new, just like the new heavens, right, the new universe. Um, verse 25 is simply saying that there won't be any night in the new Jerusalem. Listen, there shall be no night there. Many believe that the new Jerusalem will be the primary source of light for the whole world, for the whole world, and that it will act as a giant beacon of light for all to see. You've seen the 9-11 memorial, at least on TV or books or something, and how they got those two gigantic lights that shine up into the night sky. Everyone can see them, right? 
Imagine a city 1,500 miles high, wide, deep, radiating light. I mean, you talk about brightness. The whole earth is going to see it, that brightness. You're going to see it from outer space, no doubt. But think of the city as a giant beacon for all to see. Verse 26, And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall be by no means, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now the language sounds like it could mean that the city will be pure, but right outside the gates, you're going to have all kinds of evil trying to get in. No, absolutely not. Because if you go back to verses 7 and 8 of Revelation 21, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death so every wicked person unbeliever um, names a bunch of categories they're going to be in the remotest part of the universe a place so far in the outer darkness that no light penetrates they're going to be cast into the lake of fire which I believe is a reference to a star that burns without giving light. There are stars and things that burn in a certain chemical spectrum where they are on fire but don't give off light. And this is going to be the fate of all those who have rejected Christ. They will be so far removed from earth and the new Jerusalem, it won't even, they won't even ever be an issue. Besides, they can't leave that place once they're cast in at all. I'll end with one final quote. One commentator said, the exhortation warns present readers. Now remember, John is talking about a future time, right? At least a thousand years from now, okay? Because the millennial kingdom has to happen before the eternal state, right? But now, periodically, we're brought back to the present. And this author says, the exhortation warns present readers that the only way to participate in the future city is to turn one's loyalties to the Lamb now. Today is the day of salvation, right? The Bible says very clearly that every knee is going to bow before Jesus Christ someday and declare him your Lord. Timing is everything. Those who do that right now while they're still alive will enter into eternal life. Those that do not, the rebels... Someday, God's going to resurrect them when they die, and they're going to stand before him on the day of judgment, and they are going to bow the knee. But it will be too late. And so if you want to be a part of God's incredible plan, this is heaven. This is, a, again, an eternity that might be even in a d different dimensionality. I mean, we don't, we don't even have the ability to really comprehend everything John's seeing. Um, I do know this, if you want to be a part of his kingdom, then you've got to bow the knee to Jesus right now. And that was just an important uh, point that chapter 21 ends with.
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the glorious future, the glorious eternity you have waiting for us as your people. Well, we just thank you, Lord. We just ask that you would keep blessing these studies in your word. But also, Lord, we are living in perilous times. Darkness is everywhere. Man has corrupted himself beyond redemption, I, I, I believe. Um, and Lord, we just pray that you would give us grace to finish our race strong, to not get caught up in the hatred or division, but to love people with your love. You died for all men and women. You want to see all people saved and come to your truth. Give us grace to be a light in the darkness, Lord, and give us your agape love that we would love the people of this world, no matter how evil they are, they need redemption. And we just pray that you give us love for them and we would pray for them and that, Lord, you would save uh, many before the rapture, uh, starting with and including our own families. So we thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.